Good morning. I'm Dan Kemp, one of the elders serving you here at Redeemer. This morning we are continuing our study of 1 Kings and the prophet Elijah. I'll be reading this morning 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 24, from which Dan's sermon is taken. And as is our custom here at Redeemer, I ask that you please rise, if you are able, in honor of God's word. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. God's word, it is forever true. Please be seated. Uh, In the rest of the areas of our life. So it's really important to make time for those things, and it was great to be there. So uh, if you missed this year uh, already, we're looking forward to next year and course other things as we go. I have some water. I apologize. I got a little uh, exuberant in my cheering in our competition yesterday even though we came in second. And if you're not first, you're last. So second doesn't really matter. Um, But it was a lot of fun. Uh, Good to be with brothers and Christ. And it's great to be with you this morning to worship the Lord together. So if you would, let's pray. Father, help us as we come to your word to be still, to listen Uh, to know these are not my words, but your words. Uh, Whatever might be for me, Lord, just cause it to to drift away. But may your spirit speak loudly through your word. May we trust in your faithful word. And may that word change us, shape us, mold us more and more to the image of your son, Jesus. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever been confused by God? Have you ever been perplexed by his seeming inaction? As we read the story, did you feel your story maybe has lined up a little bit with that widow? That in the midst of God's apparent inaction or the the confusing actions of the Lord, that your faith begins to waver. I mean, if you remember her situation, before that, she was about to die. She was gathering sticks to try to make a final meal for her son, who she saw wasting away. And God brings the prophet Elijah and asks her to trust 
in Yahweh against her own God to save her life. And she did. And God was faithful. God provided from a jar of oil and a jug, or a jar of flour and a a jug of oil, each day, day after day, she continued to trust in the promise of God. And their stomachs were full, and their life went on. And then all of a sudden, her son was dead. Why would God keep them alive only to take his life then? Are you there this morning where you're saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? Have you been there in the past? All of us will be there in the future where we wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? And it's not necessarily her abandoning her faith. But why is God doing this? What is going on? Oftentimes during stress and hardship and suffering, our faith actually becomes tested and true and stronger as we see God prove himself faithful to us. To see how beyond the confusion and the perplexing action or inaction, that he still is God. Well, let me ask you a question. Who would you say is the main character in chapter 17? Is it the prophet Elijah who pops on the scene and announces that there's going to be a drought according to God's word because Ahab, the wicked king, and the people were no longer listening to God? Would you say it's the nameless widow who shows faith in contrast to Ahab? Or the unknown son? Well, you might already know the answer. The real character, the centerpiece of this passage is Yahweh. It's God himself. He's the main player. He's the hero. In fact, you may not have realized this, but 1 Corinthians 17 or 1 Kings 17 is really a beautiful picture of the very character of God and how God works. It really is the narrator showing us, not telling us, but showing us the character of God. Like you might find in a systematic theology textbook at seminary or it lists the characteristics of God. He's showing us those things. He's showing us that Yahweh is a holy God who is not pleased with sin. That he is a a just God who keeps his promises even to bring punishment against those who have sinned against him. He keeps his promises. He provides for his people. He shows grace and mercy to the widow and fatherless. We've seen a picture of a God who is holy and just and faithful and merciful, and kind, and good. All in this one chapter. And as we do that, we want to be reminded that this promise-keeping God is a God who acts. He's not only the creator of life, he's the sustainer of life. He's shown that it's not these other false regional gods that have control over the rains. It is the creator, the one true living God, who brings rain and who brings drought, who brings life and who brings death. He is the God who is upholding all creation and its creatures. A great word to summarize that is providence. God is in control of all things. But he's also a God who rescues and redeems. He's a God who who rescues 
Elijah from the consequences of the drought. He's a God who rescues the widow and her son from starvation and death. He's a God who rescues and redeems the widow's son. We see the God of the Old and the New Testament beautifully revealed in his character and his actions in this passage. And he is the hero. And even as we read it, some things that might have seemed odd, I hope will click into place for you and go, oh, that's why they wrote it this way. So that our eyes are pointed towards the Lord. Well, let's look at verse 17. After this, now again, after this is the word of the Lord being faithful day after day after day as oil and flour provided food and life for the widow and her son and for Elijah. And listen to what she says as her son dies. She comes to Elijah. What do you have against me, man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to, to cause the death of my son? I mean, she has shown daily faith in the provision of God. And yet, at this moment, as her son dies, she is in grief and loss and says, God, what is God doing? You're the, the, the man of God. Why? What have I done? Now, some of us want to be quick to say, well, you haven't done anything. You should just trust the Lord. He's sovereign. He's in control. Sometimes we can use truth in an unhelpful way particularly in the midst of grief and suffering. Have you ever been there? I mean, have you, in the midst of a hard circumstance, maybe the death of a child or the death of a loved one, had your faith a little deconstructed? Is, is, why would God provide only to take away? And in your perplexity and confusion, you can really begin to question, is God trustworthy? Is he reliable? Is he good? And you can begin to say, what have I done? See, we, as much as we want to rest in the fact that we are loved and rescued and saved by the sovereign mercy of God, by His grace, there's still a part of us that thinks we get what we deserve when we do good and when we do bad. We still kind of fall into this performance-oriented life towards God. Even if we know and could tell you that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is revealed in the Scriptures alone, we all sometimes pull back to the old default view. I've got to earn God's love. Or, bad things happen because I did bad things. And Jesus let us know in several stories in the New Testament, that's not true. A tower fell and they said, well, who's, who, who, what did they do wrong? And he said, they didn't do anything wrong. Or, why was this man born blind. Did he do something or did his parents do something? He said, no, this is for the glory of God. We live in a broken world. All the consequences are not necessarily related to your particular sin. But we can often feel that, can't we? Especially some of you who may have a, a more sensitive conscience, uh, an oversensitive conscience. That can be a real thing that, that keeps you weighed down. You feel the shackles of your sin. So, she, and I say that, but I think, to be quite honest, also, the author is, is using her again as a foil against King Ahab, who didn't listen to God, who didn't want to hear what God had to say, who didn't think he was doing anything wrong, didn't see any of his sin, and here is this, this Gentile, Phoenician, former Baal-worshipping woman who's saying, have I sinned against Yahweh? Is this what I deserve? And yes, 
all of us for our sin deserve death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. And he's showing her mercy and grace. But I want us to be careful to not to be let good theology callously miss and enter into the pain of someone in grief and sorrow. I mean, listen even how Elijah, the prophet of God, enters into this. Listen to his response. Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and he laid him on his own bed. Again, I don't know what's going on in Elijah's mind. I'll tell you what would be going on in mine. All right, what am I going to (laughs) do? Like, I don't know what to do. He doesn't have a promise here. When he announced the drought, he was basing it on the promise of God. If you disobey, if you don't listen to me, there's going to be a drought that will draw your hearts back to your covenant God. There's no promise here that he's claiming. And listen even to how he prays. O Lord, again, Yahweh, remember when it's all caps, that's his covenantal name, Yahweh, that he revealed to, to Moses in Exodus 3. I am your God. I am who I am. You've brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn. You can hear him saying the same question. What are you doing? You brought me to her to provide for me. You've been faithful day after day after day. Why are you doing this? He's experiencing her pain. He's bringing her pain before Yahweh. See, he is helpless. He doesn't have anything else to do other than to pray. That is a very hard and very good place to be. We have so many resources in our own lives, in the triangle. We'd call 911. We'd get them to Duke or UNC or Rex or Wake Med. We have so many resources that often we aren't forced to recognize our need and our helplessness to have to pray. And here Elijah comes on behalf of the widow, wrestling as well. Lord, you're the giver and taker of life. Why did you take her son? Notice he didn't say, hey, relax. You know, Job said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. You'll be okay. He didn't offer wisdom and, or foolish counsel like that. He, he took the son and he went up. And then he stretched himself on the child three times. And do you know what that stands for? I don't know either. Really. A lot of people speculate and nobody knows. I I think part of it is the drama of the story. He he doesn't know what to do and he's, he's praying and he's putting himself on this boy which one is making him unclean as a prophet but he doesn't care. He is begging and pleading and crying out to his merciful God who brought food to him from a raven, water from a brook, and food from a dying widow. He knew his God. Oh Lord, my God. Oh Yahweh, my God. The God to whom he had prayed for drought. And he saw him faithful. A God who was faithful to provide. A God who was faithful to lead, even into Baal country, and show himself God over these other false gods. What do you do? What do you do when you have nowhere else to turn? 
Have you developed an intimacy with God, a trust in God from seeing His faithfulness throughout history and your personal history to be able to say, Oh Yahweh, my God. And to throw yourself on Him, not just for you, but for others. Friends, Elijah didn't have answers, but he had a God. A God he trusted. And just to give you an insight, I, I often don't have answers as your pastor. I often don't have answers for my own life and the perplexities and confusion in my own life, let alone yours or our churches, our nations, or the world's. But I can, with you, sometimes weeping, sometimes confused, say, I don't know. But let's turn to Yahweh, our God who has been faithful before, and He will be faithful again. I imagine all of you have had moments your faith has wavered, especially this last year and a half. And that's okay. Because He's never wavered. We have a God we can turn to, a God we can run to, a God who is faithful and true. And so He prays and He prays. And verse 22, listen to these amazing words. Yahweh listened to the voice of Elijah. Yahweh listened. He heard his prayer. A prayer that was thrown in desperation based on the character of this holy, just, merciful, good God who's caring for the widow and the fatherless. And the life of the child came into him again and he was revived. He was exercising his faith in the midst of the unknown by laying it before the Father, not just for himself, though he was emotionally involved, but for this widow. Friends, what an application for us to intercede for one another. To come alongside in those moments when we say, I don't know, but I will pray for the Lord to work. What a great opportunity we have for each other to pray to exercise faith, to to move towards one another. To hear God respond and give this young man life. Now, here's the part that I think is a little bit odd. I think it's a bit revealing, and it should help you as you read the passage, because look at verse 23. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother, and said, See, your son lives. There is no sign of the mom jumping up and down. Elijah saying, can you believe this? Look at this, this is amazing. The child's alive again. I mean, I would write this completely differently. I'd want to know how the widow was acting. I'd want to know what the son was saying. But it just says, here's your son. And then look at the next verse. Because this is the climax of the passage. Now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Everything's understated in this passage. Who's Elijah? We don't know. There's no backstory, but he does pretty amazing things. Who's this widow? What's her name? Why don't we know her name? This is the first resurrection in the Bible. We don't know her name. 
We don't know the son's name. We don't know her reaction. We don't know his reaction. Elijah is all cool like, yeah, here's your son. (laughs) Because the writer wants us to see this is about Yahweh. Back in the beginning of the chapter, Elijah the Tishbite comes and he says, there's going to be a drought except by my word, and then the word of the Lord came to him. This chapter is sandwiched by the word of the Lord. And if you back up just a little bit more in the end of chapter 16, if you were with us, there's this really weird kind of sentence that doesn't make a whole lot of sense at the end of 16, verse 34. In his days, the days when King Ahab, who was the worst king of all, he built, um, it says, he laid its foundation, he rebuilt Jericho. Now, we might forget, but after, you know, we know the story of Jericho. You walk around, the trumpets blow, the walls fall down. We forget that God said, never, ever build again on Jericho. You don't need to trust it as a strategic military stronghold because I'm your God. And what does Ahab do? He has Hiel go and build, rebuild on Jericho to ignore the word of God. And what was the consequence? He lost two of his sons. And here we have a Gentile, formerly Baal-worshipping woman who heeds the word of God and her son is alive. This is beautiful theological, historical storytelling. They want us to see the very character and goodness of God who destroys and overcomes and goes into enemy territory and defeats these false gods. Because remember, the story is being written for the people who are in exile because they hadn't listened to God. And God kept His promise, I'm going to send you away until your hearts are returned. And so as they're hearing this in Babylon, longing to come home, God is saying, don't trust these false gods. Yahweh's word is true. Friends, how much more as we reflect on the fullness of God's revelation, where we turn to Luke chapter 7, if you want to, you can, but just listen to this story. There's a town called Nain. His disciples go, there's a great crowd with them, as they get near the gate, there's a widow. Her only son is dead. And Jesus comes up and he says, arise. He doesn't bend over three times. He doesn't have to cry out to Yahweh for here is Yahweh, the Word who became flesh, and he says, arise. The same God-man who came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had been in the tomb three days. And he says, Lazarus, arise! And out comes Lazarus. The same God-man who three days later the stone is rolled away, the angels say he is no longer here, he is risen. He appears to Thomas, who says, my Lord and my God. Paul, who says of first importance that Christ Jesus has conquered sin and death in the grave. He has risen from the dead. He is the first fruits of what is promised for you and for me. See, this 
is the beginning of the gospel story in clarity that God is conquering death. See, Jesus went into enemy territory just like Elijah. He went into the grave to show that death had no hold over him. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a people who are, who are being threatened by the world, who are being threatened with inside to abandon their faith. And he, he writes this helpful passage that I think gives us some insight here. See, in verse 15, this is chapter 2, he, he makes this statement that we often are enslaved by a fear of death. Let's be honest, we don't like to talk about death in our culture. We do everything we can to avoid it. We're often confronted with it when we have the death of a loved one. We're in a time of a pandemic like this. We so, see so many lives lost. We sometimes try to say, well, those, that, that can't be true. I don't want to think about my own mortality. But if you've buried someone that you love, you know. In January, as I stood by the graveside of my dad, as they lowered the casket in, I, I was confronted with my own mortality and with the hope of the resurrection. So the writer of Hebrews says, look, we're, we're often afraid of death. We're, we're overwhelmed. We want to ignore it. We don't want to think about these things. But it's in the context of this beautiful picture how Jesus, our brother, is, is leading us into the presence of God to sing his praises. He says, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's why the writer in Galatians says, you are Abraham's offspring. If you come by faith, you are brought into the people and the promises of God. This really is a passage that God is victorious over death. It's pointing us to the great victory that Jesus has, a prophet who came, who entered into enemy territory, and showed the other gods were weak and were conquered. I don't know if you're held by the grip of death right now. I don't know if you're facing imminent death or a loved one. But friends, all of us here one day will. No matter how much you exercise, no matter how well you eat, we can't avoid it. But one of the things that this passage should do is not only give you hope as you face death, but confidence that God's Word is true. She was now, her, her faith had been built. I don't think she was, I think she was already trusting in Yahweh, but then she wavered and it was strengthened. This, yes, he is the God over life and death. Of course I can trust him. Jesus is the first fruits. If God has begun to keep his promises to make the new heavens and the earth, and he's brought Christ up, and Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You're going to come. I'm going to make a new heavens and earth. We can live with gospel hope and certainty, even if we face death. I want you to be able to come back to this chapter when you're confused and you're perplexed. and Say, you know, I, I need a story that just doesn't tell me about who God is. I want to see who God is. My holy, just, 
good, merciful God who cares for widows and orphans, who has power over death, who rescues and redeems, who creates and sustains. I want this passage to be brought up by God's Spirit again and again and again when you feel lost in the maze of this world and say, God's Word is true. I can trust it. I heard a little story that I think is really helpful on the topic of death. And again, you're like, quit talking about death. We don't like talking about death. We don't know what to do. We don't like the unknown. We don't know how to face it. And the story is about a man who was dying and he went to his doctor who was a Christian and they're in his office at his house and he says, doctor, what lies ahead? And the doctor was fumbling a little bit trying to think and as he was doing that, there was a scratch at his door. His dog was there. He said, did you hear that? My dog knows I as master am in here and he wants to be in. He doesn't know what's on the other side of the door for sure, but he knows I'm here. So that's what we have of the promise of Scriptures. I can't tell you immediately what's going to happen when you cross over from death to life from this physical world until he makes the new heavens and the earth, but we know who God is. We know that he promises he will one day make all things new. There will one day be a, a beautiful garden. There'll never be drought. There'll never be death. There'll never be tears. There won't be cancer. There won't be sin. There will just be delighting in the glory of the presence of God. Friends, I want you, I want me to be able to say with this amazing widow, Yahweh's word is true. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And this table reminds us of the future banquet we have in heaven because He drank the cup of God's wrath. God gave His own Son to death and then raised Him from the dead. Friends, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith. And because He is raised, we too will be raised again, those who have faith in Him. This is the good news of the Gospel. Let me pray. Father, thank You that You show us Your faithfulness. Not only in the the picture of saving this widow's son, or the widow at Nain, or Lazarus, but that your very Son rose from the grave and sits at your right hand, and you said He will come again to make all things new. Father, we long for that day, and until that day when we are perplexed, when we are confused, when we, our faith is wavering, remind us of who you are. Help us to remind each other of who you are. Not with trite platitudes, but coming with prayerfulness for one another to build our faith, our trust in these words. For you are a trustworthy God. O Lord, increase our faith. But thank you that it's not the strength of our faith, but on your unflinching, unwavering, unbreakable promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.